This message is not only for you, it's for me. I had to spend hours kind of reviewing and studying it and crying about where I lack the things that the Bible is talking about. Because we're all flawed men, we're all sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God. The big deal about it is that we have this loving, caring God who says, if you follow me, if you seek me, if you delight in me, like these words mean a great deal to us. Like if you seek me, like if you stop all this white noise in your life, all these distractions, and you just seek me, you will find me. So I'm so grateful I am a father to three grown children. <laughs> they did not come with instructions. The first one was the guinea pig. And oftentimes, she looks back and says, well, why are you letting them get away with that when I couldn't get away with it? And the answer is Jesus. <laughs> Amen? But that's why they were able to do it. I worked for about seven years on Rikers Island. And uh, I worked in the adolescent unit, C-76, C-74, the Sprungs. If you know anything about those places, it's horrible. I saw the best of young people come through those units. And when I see the best, Kids who were talented, artists, musicians, you know, they rapped. They, they were, I mean, they were so creative that they were able to heat up soup by plugging in two wires into a socket. Wow. Yeah. Like, that's how they created it. I said, why couldn't you use that creativity out there to keep you out of here? And they polled over 5,000 adolescents, and 80% of them said this, if I had a father, I would not have been here. Wow. 80% of them. 80% of 5,000 said, if I had a father, I would not be here. See, that's one place I cannot afford to fail because it has a generational impact. Well, my children and their children and their children serve God because of my witness, my steadfastness, my long-suffering. Will they serve God as long as I stand in the gap? And I'm constantly pouring into them and reminding them of this. I don't want my faith to end with me. I don't want that to happen. So we're constantly having those conversations about that, and it's so powerful because when you think about it, you know, we all had fathers, right? And some of us, you know, we can look at it and say, yeah, my dad wasn't that good, but here's what I do know. We have a heavenly father. Listen to me. You're not listening to this. I have a heavenly father who loves me despite myself. It's got nothing to do with how well I behave. It has a lot to do with what he's done and his love for me. It's unconditional. I'm not there yet. We're all not there yet, right? We love based on condition. If you love me, I love you, right? If you honor me, I honor you. But God says, I love you, period. That's it, period. Right? The kids taught me this in high school, period, right? So... I was doing it all wrong, but you know, they, they, they kind of had mercy on me and they helped me out with it. So I want to give you a definition of a word, then we're going to read the scripture, and then I'm going to dive into it. It is a book that there's only two books in the Bible that are named after women. One is Esther, and if you look at Esther's story, uh, long story short, you should read it. Um, it, it's a slave girl who rises up to one of the highest positions as the wife of the king, and then there's a plan to uh, kill her people, and God uses her to save her people. Okay? So you should read it. It's a very powerful story, uh, the way it plays itself out. And the book that we'll be going in today is the book of Ruth. Right? 
Like, who is Ruth? You know, why is she in the Bible? Right? And, and there's a great story. The title of this sermon is Turning Tragedy into Triumph. Okay? Turning Tragedy into Triumph. I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're in a mess. And you can't see God in this mess. You don't understand what's going on, what's happening. I just know this to be true, that God is always working. God doesn't take a day off. It's not a moment of your life that he has wasted. Your mess becomes a message. Your chaos becomes order as you allow him to come into your life and do what he does best, which is he's a fixer. <laughs> like, like he's a fixer, right? Like, like, like that's what he does. So we're going to look at Ruth's story, but I want to give you a definition of a word that seems to be absent in, in society today, right? And it's this word empathy. Yes. Empathy. I started reading this book. Well, I'm not reading it. It's, it's my way of connecting with my daughter. She started reading this book called Emotional Grit. Emotional Grit. And the grit stands for something. It escapes me because she tries to talk to me when I'm sleeping and I don't remember things when I'm sleeping, right? But in it, it talks about leading from a place of empathy. And I'm reminded as I go through life, thinking what does empathy look like, right? Sympathy is you simply telling someone you're sorry. You feel sorry for what's happened to them, right? You, you, you're sympathetic. You say, oh, I'm sorry that's happening to you, blah, 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 blah. And you, know, you, you throw all that stuff out there. But empathy is this. Empathy is putting yourself in the shoes of another. Okay? It's the ability to understand another person's thoughts and feelings in a situation from their point of view, not yours. Not yours. Two people can lose a loved one. And the last thing I want to say to you is, I know what you're going through. Because my relationship with my loved one would have been different than your relationship with your loved one. And there's a profound feeling that you go over. Profound feeling. I remember burying my sister when she died of cancer. And of course, because I'm the oldest one in the house, I had to kind of take care of things. Right? Anybody ever have to do that? Like it falls on you. You know, for some reason. Everybody's distraught and somebody has to stand in the gap and say, okay, we got to take care of this, take care of this, take care of this. And I remember I didn't cry. I didn't cry because I was, had to take, you know, you suppress your feelings and I didn't cry. And then two or three weeks later, after my sister passed away, my stepfather died in his sleep. And when I found out, I was bawling. Like I was crying like a baby, if not worse. You know, with the, and the snot and all that. Like I was crying. And my wife looks at me and says, I didn't know you loved him that much. But I wasn't crying for him only. I was crying for the fact that I suppressed my feelings over here. So when you're showing empathy, a lot of times it's not you saying, oh, I know what you're going through. Your experience is your experience. Empathy demands of us that we do what? We put ourselves in someone else's shoes and realize that what they're going through is what they're going through. And empathy often requires us just to be present. For the fidgety ones in the room, for the ones who have all kinds of opinions, Specifically, it says to me 
that just to be present, not saying anything, not offer your opinion, this moment cries out for you to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Just being there. Just being there a lot of times is a demonstration of empathy. And sometimes we look at people and we blame them for their situations, not realizing that you don't know anything about them. Pastor Zach just shared about this young lady who, again, homeless. And a lot of times we look at homeless people, we look down at them thinking that, how'd you get here? Why don't you get up and get a job? <laughs> like, like there's, there's this arrogance here in the West Hemisphere more than anywhere else. Not realizing that you don't know that person's story. That person was an organizer, an advocate. Something happened along the way. Something happens along the way where people just can't cope, give up hope. And rather than us pointing a finger, let's be a little bit more empathetic. Amen? Amen. Can we do that? Can we practice that? Amen? So, this story specifically, you're going to see, hopefully, after I put that out there, that there is empathy here, not only from the people that are involved, but God himself. So we can stand to our feet. I'd love to read this text and dive into it. Again, we stand because we want to honor God, and because we honor God, we want to be able to show respect in the house of God. It's important for us to understand. That's why we do it. Amen? Okay, so in Ruth, chapter 1, I'm going to be reading... Eh, probably up to 14, and then I'll speak throughout the, the sermon about the rest of it. But it says this, Long ago, when judges ruled in Israel, a man named Amalek from Bethlehem left the country because of a famine and moved to the land of Moab. With him were his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Malan and Chilion. During the time of their residence there, Amalek died and Naomi was left with her two sons. Whew. These young men, Melon and Jillian, married girls in Moab, Oprah and Ruth, and later both men died so that Naomi was left alone without her husband or sons. She decided to return to Israel with her daughter-in-laws for she had heard that the Lord had blessed his people by giving them good crops again. But after they had begun their homeward journey, she changed her mind and said to her two daughter-in-laws, why don't you return to your parents' homes instead of coming with me? And may the Lord reward you for your faithfulness to your husbands and to me, and may he bless you with another happy marriage. Then she kissed them, and they all broke down and cried. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, it's better for you to return to your own people do I have younger sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes for I am too old to have a husband. And even if that were possible, and I became pregnant tonight and bore sons, would you wait for them to grow up? No, of course not, my daughters. Oh, how I grieve for you that the Lord has punished me in a way that injures you. Verse 14 says, and again they cry together. And Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and returned to her childhood home. But Ruth insisted on staying with Naomi. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. 
I don't know as you heard it being read, Naomi had some bad luck. <laughs> like, like there's just stuff that happened to her. Like imagine that you leave your place where you grew up because there's a condition now, you can't find work, you know, there's stuff going on and you relocate to another place. Famine means that there's no food, there's a drought, right? There's, there's no crop that's growing. So her husband, being the leader of his home, said, we're going to go somewhere else to try to make do, right? Because I can't stay here, I can't care for you, I can't provide for you if we stay here. And they go to do this. And according to the text, we see that the minute he's there for a little bit, he dies. Now, you have to understand the culture of this time. The culture of this time is patriarchal. That means that the father and the sons are responsible for the caring of the mother. First, the husband is responsible for the family, and then if the husband passes, the sons are supposed to care for their mothers. Amen? Everybody understand that? So Naomi now is left with her sons, but then it says time passes by, and her sons die too. So who is supposed to care for her? This is tragic. This is a tragedy. And I don't know what you felt reading this story, but as I felt it, I was like, oh man, how much can this lady take? Like how much can you take in, in the place that you find yourself at today? Maybe you're going through some difficult moments that are gut-wrenching. Maybe you don't see what's going to be the outcome of this. Maybe you don't understand why this is happening. Naomi didn't either. She didn't, but she had this situation where she had two daughter-in-laws, and she's letting them know, listen, I, you, first of all, there were Moabites, which means this, that her God was not their God. Right? So you have to understand that. So there was a transition that they would have to make in order to go with her. And we see that later on in the text as well as I continue to read. So now she's left to go back home. And, and, and the way the story unfolds, it's just, for me, it's just an amazing witness to the fact that God sees. God sees. He listens. He, he knows. He doesn't forget but, but here goes on, and I want to just read a little bit more of the story now that we're sitting. Because what happens in her transition, in verse 15, after Oprah kisses her and leaves, Ruth clings to her. Ruth says, okay, I'm, I'm going to stay with you. And she says this, and she said, look, your sister-in-law, Naomi's saying this to Ruth. She says, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. This, for me, is, is, is the most intense text that I've read in a little while. And this is what Ruth said. She says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parks you and me. Ruth took responsibility now for Naomi. Not only was she a Moabitess, but now she was converted into a follower of God. Amen. By Naomi's witness, 
Now, you're going to get this as we go along. Right now, you're just putting pieces together. You see, man, Naomi had this struggle. Naomi had this hard time. Now, Ruth steps in and makes this confident with her and says, wherever you go, I'm going. Your God is going to be my God. The only thing that's going to separate us is death. I'm going to be with you wherever we go. So when Naomi saw this, she got tired of trying to convince her not to, but they returned back to Bethlehem, and what happens is the people are excited in the city to see her come back. And they say, is this Naomi? And she says this, do not call me Naomi, call me Mata, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Anytime something happens to us, who do we blame? Like, like we never take responsibility for our actions. Listen, you are where you are because you made some choices. God didn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to zap you. God's got bigger things to do, right? Like, like you are making some choices that are leading you down a particular path. And, and most of the time is your unbelief about who God is. And until you come to that realization that there is a God who cares about you, that has ordered your steps, that there is a God that's working behind the scenes to make things right for you, even when you're messing up, he's saying, okay, I let him do that. Okay, so I got to fix this over here. Like God is always working on your behalf. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't get it. Sometimes we get it too late. But Naomi does something here because she's been witnessing to this child for so long and she's watched her and she's like, wherever you go, I go, whatever you're going to do. But she's not only changing her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. I need you to guard against bitterness when you find yourself in situations that are not turning out the way you want them to. Bitterness leads to resentment. And resentment then leads you to move away from the place that you're supposed to be. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. And oftentimes when we get pinched or we get poked, the first thing we want to do is run. And God is saying, where are you going? When Jesus started to speak harshly to the people around him, you know, uh, everybody started to leave. Right? Like everybody that was following him because of the fishes and the bread was like, whoa, we're going to eat forever with this guy. Right? But what happened was as he began to say these harsh things, turn the other cheek, you know, give a cloak, walk an extra mile. Like when he started to say those things, slowly but surely people fell away. And it's no different today. When you start to walk with God and you start reading this Bible and he says, you can't be like this anymore. And you're not willing to change. You're not willing to accept that he knows better and has best for you. You slowly realize, man, I don't want to be down for this. He's taking away all fun from my life. Is it been fun? Is it been fun to abuse your body? Has it been fun to hurt other people and hurt yourself? Has that been fun? Because if you think that's fun, then you're sick. You're sick. Because it's not fun to hurt other people. It's not fun to hurt yourself. That's why I let out with empathy. There's an empathy that we have to begin to exhibit as a society, as a church, as a people, that we understand that that person is in the place they're in. But it's not for us to say, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. It's for us to step into the moment and be president and say, I'm here. Ruth did that with Naomi. And it goes further. It says, man, God did this to me. It was God who did this. So they came during the barley season, 
which means that they were uh, harvesting the barley. And when they get there, they, you know, they set up house because, you know, Naomi still has a property that her husband owned. So now she's living in this property, but she has no son. She has no husband to go out and work and bring something into the house. So she tells Ruth, I want you to go into this field of our kinsmen. Now, again, going back to the culture, you have the husband, you have the sons. After that, it's a relative of the husband that they refer to as the kinsman. So she winds up in this field that's owned by this guy named Boaz. Now, again, you have to stay with me because we're, we're building up to something. Remember, it's tragedy to triumph. We don't see the triumph yet. We're only seeing the tragedy. She's got a property, but she's got no food. She's got no means of taking care of herself. So she sends out Ruth because, of course, she's too old to go out. She sends out Ruth, and Ruth goes to this field, and she begins to pick stuff to put in the bag. You know, she's got to... She's got to get barley. You know, if you know anything about barley, you make cereal, you make bread, you make cake, all that stuff. So Boaz comes upon the field and she catches his eyes. Like she's pretty. And she asks the servant, who? Who's that girl? Right? And the servant says, that's Naomi. You know, tells her the whole story. He's like, oh, man. I can't believe that. So then he tells her, he says, listen, from here on in, I don't want you to go anywhere else to glean, you know, to, to pick up. I want you to stay here. My people are going to leave you stuff so you can pick it up and take it home to you. And, and by the way, stay with my servant girl so nobody else bothers you. Okay, do, do, you, do you see what's happening here? Like, like God, you know, has taken this situation that we're looking at as tragedy and he's building towards something. He, she goes back to Naomi with this bag full of food. And she's like, where'd you get that from? <laughs> and she tells him the whole story. She says, this guy by the name of Boaz, let me glean on his property. He looked out for me. He's a real great guy. And she says, yes, that's our kinsman. He's the next in, you know, he's the next in line. But he isn't the next in line. The next in line is another guy. Watch this. Ruth says, clean yourself up. Put on your nicest little gown. Next time you go, I want you to watch where Boaz goes to sleep. And I want you to go in there and I want you to uncover his feet and lay down by his feet. Now, I don't know about this whole feet thing. You know? But, but I got to understand the culture. I got to understand the culture. And that culture, when you did something like that, it was an availability to marriage. It's almost as if she's proposing to him. And Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and sees this. And he says, oh, man. You know, he's overwhelmed by it and says, okay, stay here. You know, we're going to work this out. But he has to go to speak to the guy who's next in line. Because it's his responsibility to take care of Naomi and to marry Ruth. You see that? Okay. So now Boaz calls the elders in because anything that has to be sealed has to be in front of witnesses. Amen? So he brings 10 men in and he says, I want you guys to witness this conversation. And he tells the guy, he says, listen, Naomi's back. They have this property. You got to buy the property and you got to take care of Naomi. 
So of course, God's talking about real estate, old lady, I'll put her in a corner, she won't bother me, it's okay. But then he drops the bomb and says, and you also got to marry Ruth, which is the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to marry, you know, to keep the name of the family going. And he was like, nah, I'm not doing that. You, you got to see what's going on here. You got to see how God is moving in the midst. Why? Because there's a couple of things you have to understand. One is that God makes this proclamation in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's probably up on the screen. If you can put it up there, Monty. The, the, the wording there is so profound because it speaks about, now, this chapter 3, verse 15, is a direct result of the fall of man, right? Adam and Eve, they ate from the fruit, they weren't supposed to, blah, 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 blah. That happens, God steps in and tells the man, what did you do? Of course, the man says, the woman you gave me. <laughs> right? Like, that's what we do. Right? We get caught, and we're like, yo, it's his fault. It's her fault. Right? The woman now turns around and says, the serpent you put in the garden. Right? I, you see what's happening here? You're shifting blame. Right? None of you have done that. None of you have ever blamed anybody. I know that this church is on fire for God. And we're all holy people. But then he says this to the woman. He says this to the serpent because the serpent is next in line. Right? He told, you know, so... He tells the serpent, I will put enmity. That word enmity simply means conflict. Conflict. It's going to be constant conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. I will crush your, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now hold on for a moment because you need to see this in order to understand what's going on in Ruth. This thing about conflict between you, he's talking to the serpent, which represents Satan, and the woman, right, he hasn't named the woman. It wasn't Ruth. It wasn't Naomi. It wasn't Eve. And it says between your offspring and her offsprings. In other translations, it says between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who is the he? Who is the his? When you look at the seed, when it talks about the woman's seed, it's not talking about a combination between a man and a woman to produce a life. The, the woman here is Mary. The woman here is Mary, and the seed is Jesus. And what he's saying, he's saying for, for, forever, there's going to be conflict between light and darkness. There's going to be conflict between Satan and Jesus. And you're going to, he's going to crush your head because you know that Satan doesn't have power like that. Right? But he says, you will strike his heel, which is simply that Satan believed that at the cross he won. You see, he thought that on Friday it was over. Didn't realize Sunday was coming. And that the grave could not hold him. And because of that, this is a proclamation that God makes. Now, you have to understand this. I know that it's big. I know that it's far-fetched. But listen to me. As I studied the scriptures, this woman was still not born. He makes this proclamation in Genesis. So now what he has to do, he's got to make sure that this woman get born so that the Messiah could be born. Everybody got that? So throughout the Bible, as you're looking at it and you're saying, oh man, these people have gone through so much. What is God doing? 
He is building a people that are not a people. He is making a nation that doesn't exist so that this woman that's going to birth a son that he's going to send is born. That, that's, that's big. That's big stuff. This is why you have to understand. It looks like tragedy, but there's triumph. There's triumph in all this. Now, look what happens in, in Ruth as he continues to have this conversation. Now, Boaz goes. This guy refuses to do that. He marries Ruth and cares for Ruth and cares for Naomi. I want you to go to Matthew. Put it up on the screen, please. Matthew chapter 1. Now, this genealogy is significant. This is your uh, family tree, right? Does everybody know how far back can you go? I can go back as far as my great-grandparents. After that, I have to do this, you know, search ancestry, right? I, I got to do that because I don't, I don't remember. Not only don't remember, but the history of it is not shared with us too much, right? But this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, scroll up to the next one. Now it goes on and starts speaking about what father gave birth to what, you know, and so on and so on. And it goes on, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Judah, and Perez. Go to the next one. And then it's Ezra, Ram, father, next one. Stop right there. You see verse 5 there? Yes. Salmon is the father of Boaz. Who is Boaz? He's in Ruth. Okay? His mother was Rahab. We could talk about that all day. Right? All day we could talk about that. But let me just tell you something. When God has a plan, he uses whoever he wants. He, he uses those that are obedient and hear his voice and are willing. And Rahab heard. And because of it, she winds up in this genealogy. Okay, next one. Check that out. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. <laughs> you see, we're talking about the genealogy, right? We're talking about tragedy to triumph. We don't see it happening. But God is moving in your life, in my life, in our lives, in this world with the chaos that's going on. You keep asking, where is God? As if he is absent. He is not absent. He is working things out. He has a plan and a purpose and it's coming to fruition. It's coming to a point of this place. And Obed becomes the father of Jesse. We know Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. Doesn't just say David, King David. One of the most celebrated kings to this day. It's the reason why you probably name your kid David. Okay? I don't know how kingly the kids are, but we, we got to see that. Next, next, go to the next one. Right? It goes on. The line, Solomon, go to the next one. Keeps going. Next one. Next one. See, it keeps going. These are all kings. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Next one. Oops. There it is. This is the genealogy. Do you understand why this had to happen to Naomi to get her to move and get back with Ruth so that Jesus can be born? We don't see. We, we focus on the tragedy. 
But God made this proclamation in Genesis chapter 315, and he had to. So when you see the struggles, and, and God allows things to happen because it, it's the permissible will of God to get us and to continue to move, do you think that if there wasn't a famine that her husband would have left? No. He would have been chilling, right? Do you think that Naomi's witness if it was shaky, if it was flaky, that Ruth would have committed to her the way she did. God is always working. God is always working. Listen to me. When, 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 when they went in Genesis, when they wind up in the story of Joseph, which is another profound story for me, where you go from the pit to the palace and everything that happens to him, he just submits and surrenders and yields and allows God to move in his life. But he winds up from this, you know, uh, dreamer to the, the highest second command in Egypt. That's God's movement. On top of that, because he's a second in command in Egypt, when his family begins to struggle because of a famine, he brings them into Egypt. And they give him the best land, this area called Goshen. While everything else is going around Egypt and people are struggling, they said that Goshen flourished. It flourished so much that when the next pharaoh came in and didn't know these people, he started to question these women were giving, giving birth like crazy. Like, be fruitful and multiply was for real. <laughs> like, they were having kids. When I, and, you know, it, 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 and, and so, so Pharaoh tried to come up with this plan to say, listen, I, I want you to go, you know, when they're giving birth, you know, kill them. I, that's, again, Satan heard Genesis 3.15 too. He knows the Messiah is coming. He knows that his days are numbered. He knows that he will be defeated. So he sees this happening. So what does he always do? He uses those that make themselves available for evil. I hope you're listening. Because you have to understand, if you make yourself available to evil, Satan will use you for evil. Right? That, that's why you have to constantly ask God to purge your heart, to renew your mind, to change you. Because, listen, left to your own devices, Satan will snatch you up and use you for craziness. We see it, man. I just, I, I, my heart ached when I saw the news that happened about the mom throwing out the baby out the window and, and then throwing herself out the window. I'm saying, I said, devil, you're a liar. That you're constantly doing these things. So now Pharaoh tells that to them, but then what happens is these women, <laughs> you got to read it. These women are giving birth in the field. They're picking stuff and boom. And they're moving. That's what they do. It's crazy. And the midwives are saying, yo, by the Pharaoh, by the time we get there, the baby's already born. We can't do nothing about it because the midwives for Pharaoh were supposed to, as soon as the baby came out, kill the baby as it came out. But let me tell you something. God's plan is greater than Satan's plan. Much greater. And Satan can't touch you unless he allows it. Why? Because he's got to move you sometimes because you don't want to move yourself. God says, come. And you say, nah, I like this. God's saying, leave that alone. You say, come on, God. Can I have just a little taste? Can I just get my groove on for a little while? 
Like, like, like that's our negotiations with God. And God is saying, no, listen to me. Follow me, and I will make you fishes of men. Follow me, and I will give you this abundant life. Follow me. And the generation, the generation, the generation will be blessed because of your faithfulness. So this happens this way. And now Pharaoh's saying, man, we got to do something else. He said, I know what. We're going to enslave them. But look what God is doing. They went in 70 strong into Goshen. When they came out in the book of Exodus, it was over a million people. You talk about making a people that were not a people. You talk about creating a nation that not a nation. When you look at numbers, he lines them up in military order as they march into the land that they're going to occupy. Come on now. Like this is God working. Why? Because in Genesis he said, this is what I'm going to do. See, because if the first Adam was enough, we wouldn't need Jesus. If the Passover was enough, we wouldn't need to kill any more lambs. See, and Jesus comes on the scene and he says, it is said of him, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So no longer do we have to have a sacrifice. No longer do you and I have to sacrifice. Now, now I have to say this because a lot of you still think that if you do this, God will love you more. And if you do that, he'll love you more. It's not how it works. See, he loves you in your mess. He loves you in your mess. He loved you when you were still an enemy to him. And despite all that, imagine that. Like, I would give my life for somebody who loved me, but I wouldn't give my life for somebody who doesn't love me. That's a waste of a good life. But that's what God did. God saw me all messed up, twisted, crazy, bugged out. And he said, the only way to fix him is someone's got to die for him. And it's got to be someone who's perfect. And that's where Jesus came in. These people came out and they travel and they move and he provides them kings and he's building a nation. Why? Because the world had to know about God through them. These people knew, even if they didn't follow that God, they knew about him. Rahab, in this story of the genealogy, the reason Rahab winds up here is because she tells about the spies when they come in and say, yo, I know about your God. You know, and I don't want to do anything to get on the bad side, right? So I'm going to protect these guys. But when you come to raid the city, remember me. I did you a favor, right? And God provides Rahab to be in this book. Let me tell you what Rahab does for me and you. It gives us hope. It gives us hope that God can use crazy folk like us for his glory and for his honor. Ruth was not a Jew. Ruth was not Jewish. She was a Moabitess, enemies of the people of God. But there's one thing I know, that when you're introduced to God, it doesn't matter what you grew up believing, you change. You change. The invitation is inclusive. It's for all of us to come in for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. The world is not just you. The world is not just this room. The world is everyone. I don't care where you are, where you've been. Listen, when, when we say yes to Jesus, I don't know about you, but we're not abandoned. We're not abandoned. But let someone of another faith come to Christ, and they're written off. 
Their families abandon them. They don't want to know about them. Like, what's up with that? Like, like, really? Your kid now or your spouse is serving the king of kings and the lord of lords. His life has changed. You no longer have to worry about him. You know, the minute I came to Christ, my mother slept through the night. She slept through the night. If you're a mother in this room and you got some wayward kids, you're always waiting for that. That knock on the door. The knock on the door. My mother would, would pray and, and, and she would always say, God, take care of my kids. And she got that knock on the door when we were locked up and stuff. She was like, thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. <laughs> she did. I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard for us to embrace that. But, but when we pray to God, your answer may not come the way you want it to. That's why when God, you know, people ask me, the men, you know, I work with, they say, hey, pastor, pray for me. I say, are you sure about that? Because what I'm going to ask him for is not what you're asking him for. Because I believe in the power of God to pull people from where they are and bring them from where they need to be. And sometimes, sometimes, you're going to come limping. You're going to come hurting. But here's what I know. That God sees your pain. And God heals you. And God embraces you. And he allowed that to happen because you wouldn't come willingly. Like, I didn't come willingly. Don't, don't. I didn't. I was kicking and screaming all the way through. I got called at 15, and for 14 years, I did a Jonah. I went in a different direction. At 15, God said, I want to use you. And I said, yeah, but I still got a couple of runs in me. So, like, can you hold that off for a little while? And, and I went and did a Jonah. I went through a different, you know, different lifestyle. At 29, with everything that happened, he allowed me to cry out to him. And guess what he did? I was waiting for you. I was waiting for you to make that decision. Because here's what I know. God is not going to force himself into your life. He's going to allow things to happen to get you to a place where you finally realize that your tricks, your black book, your manipulation, your ideas, they don't work. When we come to this place of surrender, he says, okay, now... Now you're ready to listen to me. This story is so profound for me because it gives me hope. It gives me hope that in the midst of tragedy, there's a triumph. Guys, I hope you've seen this. I, I hope you understood that that Ruth's story is there for a reason, not just to take up space. And every single thing that has happened in your life is not to take up space, but to bring glory to God, to bring glory to God. So I want to encourage you to be still and know that he's God, to step back away from the picture because as long as you're in the picture, face to face, you cannot see. Like this hand is not big enough to cover the light, but if I do this, guess what happens? I can't see. I got to be able to move back and say, ah, that's what God is doing. And when you do that, you become more accepting 
because here's what I know. There's a lot of work that he still has to do in me. There's a lot of work. <laughs> there, there's a lot of work. And what I love about God is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says that he is faithful to complete that which he had started. Now, he started something in me. And I love, I love, I love this idea. I heard this song the other day, and it's in Spanish. And it talks about the, 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 the shed, the woodshed. If you know anything about the woodshed, is that people, you know, they have saws there, they have hammers, they chop down a tree, and they take it in there, and they begin to shape it, right? Chop it up and chop it up. And the song talks about the woodshed of God. And I got to constantly be going into that shed. <laughs> where hammer and chisel make you and mold you and it hurts, but if you truly, truly, truly want to serve God, then you have to die. 